I'm excited to tell you about a new and absolutely free resource we have available for women 40 and over. It is a weekly newsletter called Feisty 40 Plus, and it's created for active women who want to live their strongest, healthiest, happiest lives. Each week, we dig into the newest research and tell you exactly what you need to know. You'll find science-based training tips, nutrition advice, and much more. We also highlight badass women doing super cool stuff, which I really love. There's no fluff, there's no filler, just information, inspiration, and tangible steps that will help you continue to do all the stuff you love doing while feeling your happiest, healthiest, and best. Sign up at feistymenopause.com to stay in the know. are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. It is time for another show on hormones, but this time we're not talking estrogen or progesterone or even testosterone. We are talking about one of the most misunderstood and wrongfully maligned hormones coursing through our veins, cortisol, that somewhat infamous stress hormone that gets blamed for excess belly fat and high blood sugar and accelerated aging and a host of other menopausal and midlife woes. The conversation around cortisol has gotten so out of control that we hear from menopausal and midlife women who are actually afraid to exercise or exercise too much because they've been told it will raise their cortisol, which, and this is true, can already be elevated during this time of life. The problem with this narrative is that it's completely one-sided. It paints cortisol as a demon to be avoided at all costs, when actually cortisol is essential to maintain and improve fitness and, frankly, for human life. This week, I sat down with our favorite endocrinologist, Dr. Carla DiGirolamo, to dive in to what cortisol is, what it does, and how menopausal women can manage and, yes, even befriend it to optimize their health, performance, and well-being. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Along with being a double board certified reproductive endocrinologist and OBGYN, specializing in infertility and menopausal medicine, Carla is also an endocrine consultant for Wild Health. She is a CrossFit level one trainer, a certified nutrition coach, a member of CrossFit Health. She's a MedFit care provider, and she now provides weekly workouts and medical updates at her Substack Athletic Aging. So I will put a link to all of that, her and her work in the show notes so you can check it out. All right. Before we get to it, as always, check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Feisty Menopause. Sign up for my free weekly menopause blog at feistymenopause.com. While you're there, check out our Level Up Menopause membership, where we have experts like Carla come in and talk to us one-on-one. And also, our next Feisty Menopause Performance Retreat at Lake Nona, Florida is coming up. It is going to be November 16th through the 18th. We had such an amazing time at the last one, and I learned a ton from our movement analysis and all the other lectures. 
I think there's just a couple spots left in this one. So if you want to join me and the team in Florida, head on over to feistymenopause.com and nab a spot today. All right. Finally, quick thanks to Cool Jams for coming on as a sponsor. I have been sleeping in their ultra soft, super wicking shorty set, and I just love how cool they make me feel. I have always run hot and slept hot even before this little journey through menopause, which turns up the furnace even higher. So I really appreciate them. Thanks, Cool Jams. You can check out um, their PJs and their sleep sets and get a discount with the show notes in our show. All right, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Okay, Carlo, welcome back to show number four. I don't know. We're going to have to stop counting. We'll get you to five and I'll get you one of those fancy jackets like they do on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take a jacket. I'll take a feisty jacket. I love there you it. go. Feisty jacket. <laughs> so we, as we were talking about before I hit record, oh my Lord. Uh, you know, we we're watching this cortisol conversation happen and you know, I talk about it too. We talk about it in next level. We, it, it comes up a lot in the menopause space, but it feels like this is just taken on a life of its own. And the conversations around cortisol are kind of really in, intense and sometimes I think intensely misdirected. So I'm actually going to, I'm going to kick off this with your own words because you did a whole blog, which we'll link in the show notes about this, but you said, you were talking about all the destructive narratives 
menopause, but we don't have time for all of them. These are the latest in these destructive narratives is the demonization of cortisol, a hormone necessary for human life. And this notion that midlife women should avoid physical intensity because quote unquote, cortisol is bad is one of the most misguided and destructive narratives polluting our media outlets. Today's post is going to make a a case against this narrative and as will today's show. So let's, let's set the record straight on this very villainized stress hormone. What is cortisol? So cortisol is a steroid hormone. And what that means is that it is made from uh, cholesterol. And it is in a family of hormones called glucocorticoids. And glucocorticoids are hormones that can um, uh, decrease inflammation, regulate metabolism, various things like that. And it is produced by the adrenal gland and is one of the many hormones and other um, mediators of the stress response. And I want to stress that it is one of many. There are so many players in the stress hormone pathway, stress response pathway, that cortisol is just one of them. In, in the exercise I like to do to try to help people appreciate the complexity of these pathways is to, if you get on Google Images, and you type in stress response pathway, and you look at the images that come up, you'll be lucky. You'll have to look, you know, like where's Waldo and those old little magazines where they go, oh, there's cortisol. Okay. And it's buried among so many other things because there are a, there's a lot going on in that response. And so part of the reason why cortisol gets a focus is because it is in one of the main pathways and it's measurable. It's very difficult to measure it. But a lot of times what we do is when we can measure something, we latch onto it and start to think that it's the be all to end all. But when you've got so many other players in the equation that maybe aren't so measurable, you lose sight of all the rest of the hormonal complexity that's happening and that cortisol is just one player. Yeah. And what is, so let's talk about that. Like what what is the female stress response? Like I, I've been taking your MedFit course, which is, does a brilliant job of explaining like the interplay of the HPA and the HPG axis. So talk about, talk about the stress response. Where does it come from and what is happening there? And then like, let's talk about like what it looks like with female physiology specifically. Sure. So where it starts is in the brain in okay. the brain stem the uh, and the hypothalamus um, and the cortex, because something has to perceive the threat. So, you know, I'm sitting out in my yard and I see a bear in the woods or a coyote. We we're just talking about coyotes this morning in, in my, in my household. Um, you see a coyote there. That is a threat. And that's the trigger of the stress of the stress response is the is the realization of a threat of some sort. It could be the coyote. It could be you walk into the CrossFit gym and you look at the whiteboard and say, oh, shit, how the hell am I going to do this workout? And then you get that, you know, visceral response. So it starts in the cortex and then it goes to the brainstem and the brainstem and the in the hypothalamus. They they coordinate the beginning of the of the hormone pathway. And so you have several hormones that are produced in in the hypothalamus, and then they communicate with the pituitary gland, produce a bunch of other hormones that then communicate with the adrenal glands to start producing cortisol, other things that regulate blood pressure, heart rate, respiration rate, because you got to be ready to address the threat. 
What okay. also gets upregulated is upregulated is certain um, uh, Im Im immune response pathways because you have to also be ready to get injured by the coyote, and the body's got to be ready to repair itself from injury and fight off infection and things like that. Because that's where why we have the stress response is for survival, and so the immune system gets ramped up, your cardiovascular system gets ramped up, your 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 heart rate gets ramped up, your um you know your your respiratory rate, everything, and your muscles start to get uh, you know, more blood flow to them. Your pain perception also goes down. So there is a whole system-wide um, thing, upregulation that happens to help you respond to the threat. Cortisol is in that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis that plays a role there. But there are other places too, like when we think about epinephrine and norepinephrine, right? they're not so much involved in that hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access. They are actually in a family of hormones called catecholamines. They are neurotransmitters, um, which means that they act real fast because they're produced um, by nerve cells at the, at the endings of nerve cells so that they can send a message fast, right? So like if you're driving on uh, the PA turnpike or the mass turnpike and you have to stop really fast, you know how when you stop really fast, you get that surge and you feel it? Yeah, well, yeah. that's what those hormones do because some things in the pathway don't respond so instantaneously, other things do, and it's just a whole coordinated effort. So that's kind of a basic uh, overview of what structures are important. It's basically perception in the brain, mediation through the hypothalamus, then it goes onto the pituitary, then goes to the adrenal glands, and then out through the whole rest of the body. That's that's basically what it is. And, and your whole body gets amped up to fight the threat. That's so interesting. And it, it, it makes so much sense. Like it's, you know, we always say in mountain biking anyway, uh, adrenaline's a hell of a drug because you can like crash your brains out and get right back on your bike and just con continue on. And, yeah. you know, it's not until you're done that you're like, everything hurts. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Athletic events um, and exercise are great models for the stress response. And there's been some good research out there. There's one paper that I have, you know, it's, it's in front and center in one of my folders on my computer about how um, this this research group used exercise as a response as a uh, model for the stress response and how they study it. So it's it's really pretty amazing how you know the same things happen whether you see a, a threat from a from a coyote or whether you see as as a threat from you know the the the, the event that you're in the athletic event that you're doing. So then, what happens after we have fought or? are flown away from whatever the, you know, after this has passed, like what has happened to the stress response at that point? So what happens now is that things start to turn off and the immune system actually starts to play a role in turning these things off. So there are also these feedback loops within the stress response because it's it, it has to be able to turn on but it's got to be able to turn off too because you one can't sustain over the long term the elevated blood pressure elevated heart rate elevated you know blood flow and everything else for a a a long 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 time and we'll talk about chronic stress in in a little bit i'm sure yeah um but so the body has to have a mechanism to turn it off. And the immune system tends to be that regulator. So there's perception that, okay, the threat has abated. 
things start to dial down. The immune system is now ramping up because it's trying to do all the cellular repair from, you know, the, the upregulation that just happened. And it starts to turn things off. And then the parasympathetic nervous system gets activated. That's your rest and digest that pathway. And that's what finally returns your heart rate to normal, returns your respiratory rate to normal, returns blood flow, and everything else becomes quiescent again and stable in an equilibrium. So how does how is this maybe a little unique in, in the female physiology as far as how that stress response interplays with um, the HPG axis? So it's it's interesting. The stress response, you know. And maybe not, explain think, what the HPG axis is. Sorry, yeah, yeah that, that's okay. We'll talk about that too. You know, yeah. it's, it's a similar, the HPA axis in men and women is similar. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the way we respond to a threat is similar. There's differences, but very basically similar. But we have this menstrual cycle as females. Men don't have this. And this is probably one of the great departures and one of the great differences, obviously, is that other hormonal pathway we call the HPG, which is hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access. Men have a hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access. They have gonads of the testicles, and they are involved in hormone pathways. Um, but they don't have a menstrual cycle. So people aren't really aware of, the, of them until something goes wrong, you know, until they have no sperm or until something else happens. Um, but in women, the HPG, the gonads being the ovaries, um, are what give us the menstrual cycle. And so what's interesting, and, and as I was, you know, thinking about, about our, our chat today, what dawned on me is that it makes total sense that they talk to one another because, they, the, the mediators of the response live in the same place. So in the hypothalamus, you've got your hypothalamic hormones. That's cortisol releasing hormone. You have the gonadotropin releasing hormone that lives right in that same place. That's the initiator of the HPG. Then you go on down to the pituitary. The same hormones in the HPG axis live in the HP in the HPA, and the, the pituitary hormones are all living in the same place. Yeah. So when you have things in anatomical close proximity, it makes sense that they will talk to one another. And so what happens is, is when the HPA access, this is the fight or flight response that we just talked about, what that does to amp up everything else, it dials down certain things. It dials down digestion because you don't want to be digesting, you know, veal parmesan when you're ready to fight the coyote. And you, 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 um, it also turns off or it dials down the menstrual cycle. Now, you know, we see that effect when people have chronic stress, and this is prolonged stress where the where, where you never get back to that equilibrium. It has a direct negative effect on shutting off the menstrual cycle because it makes perfect evolutionary sense. If if there's if there's a coyote in the woods ready to eat you, this is not time to be bearing babies, you know, right. this is conserved from the animal kingdom. So when it, there is stress around, this is not an ideal time to be diverting resources to a pregnancy and then raising, raising your babies because this, this stress, it's a, it's, it's an inhospitable environment. So the HPA axis will shut the HPG axis down until equilibrium's established. Okay. It's safe to have babies again. We have enough fuel to support both ourselves and a pregnancy. And it's a tranquil environment to raise your, your, your young. 
So that's, and, and it's, and it's huge because, you know, not to be too dramatic, but I mean, the interplay of these two pathways is so powerful. I mean, it's, it's, it's why we exist as humans. It's how the, it's how the human race perpetuates it's survival and procreation all in the same thing. So it's incredibly powerful. So it's valuable for us as athletes and as women in general, to learn to live within this very, very powerful pathway that nature has bestowed upon us um, to be able to navigate through these times of our lives when, you know, we are out of balance or when we are adjusting to a new normal like we are in, in menopause. And let's talk about that. That's a good segue because in the MedFit course, you mentioned that estrogen helps buffer this stress response. So how how does... How does that work? And is that the crux of where we start to get this tangent of women being worried about elevated cortisol and all the things that come with that? Like the the advice, like don't exercise too hard because you're going to keep your cortisol too high. Like where is estrogen fitting into this picture? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I love that question. I'll be honest. I borrowed that expression from Stacey Sims because when I was taking <laughs> one of her courses, uh, we're reading next level, one or the other. And I read that for the first time. I'm like, oh my God, that is the best description of what's happening. And it's hard to put it into words. Um, but I thought that Stacy did that beautifully when she referred to it this way. And so let's go back to what we were talking about. The stress response mediators live in similar places, the hypothalamus yeah. and the pituitary gland. So we know they talk to each other. And there's lots of other evidence from other things that they talk to each other. So when we are having a normal menstrual cycle, when we're in our reproductive age of life and we're having regular menstrual cycles, there is a certain balance there. And because it is so closely related to the normal stress response pathway, they live in the same anatomical places that is kind of keeping the stress response in check. It's the stress response saying, okay, are we okay? Yeah, we're having a normal menstrual cycle. We're all good. Everything is great. But what happens is, is that when the menstrual cycles become dysregulated, say in perimenopause, when we don't have them as often and when they're more chaotic, well, now the stress response is sitting there saying, okay, something's out of equilibrium, something's out of balance. So now there's trying to adjust to that. You know, it's like, okay, the hormones are out of balance. That's causing all these physical effects. The stress response is saying, how do I fix this? Because I got to bring us back to equilibrium. Then, so, so there's an imbalance there. And so now if you put a stressor on top of that, your stress response has less reserve mm. to deal with a new threat. It's dealing with the fact that it's all, you know, that the menstrual cycles are out of whack and that's having certain physical effects. You lump stress onto that, you know, like a big event or the coyote, it's going to take away, you know, it's already expending resources trying to get the body back in equilibrium. You throw it even further out of equilibrium, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. So that's probably the best way that I can explain that is that, there is disequilibrium due to the changing hormones of perimenopause and menopause. The stress response is trying to find a way to bring the body back to equilibrium. So when you lump additional stress onto the whole equation, it makes it more difficult to deal with. And so then un then we have what you might call like the unchecked stress response, right? Like this chronically elevated where, um, you know, it really... We don't want to demonize cortisol, but it really does look kind of demonic when you look at the 
excess glucose production and increased fat storage and the insulin resistance and the high blood pressure and the, you know, the things that we see that are associated with this chronic stress Mm -hmm. response, correct? It's, it's a, it's a marker in some, it's a marker you can measure. It's not the sole marker. There's lots going on in the body because you think about, think about what's happening in perimenopause. We know that estrogen receptors live in nearly every tissue of the body. We also know that when the stress response gets amped up, it affects nearly every tissue of the body, the immune system, the skin, the sweat, I mean, everything, it affects everything. So it's not just watching cortisol. That's the key. It's the rest of it. And what's happening during a chronic stress response, again, the stress pathways purpose is to bring the body back to equilibrium. It's to address the issue, taking it out of equilibrium, and then to bring it back. So what you have to, the, the, the first thing the body needs to do is assess the threat, not assess the cortisol. And this is where I think people get very hung up, is that the threat's the problem, <laughs> you know, it's 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 not the cortisol, it's the threat. And so what you have to do is figure out what is what is causing the stress. Is it low energy availability in red S? Is it my crappy marriage? Is it that I don't feel safe in my marriage? Maybe, you know, I'm a, a victim of domestic violence, you know, maybe that's my chronic stressor. Maybe I have a job that I hate. You know, maybe I have an anxiety disorder or some other mood disorder. So what you have to do is look at that and say, okay, what are my stressors? What is it that's driving my stress response? And try to deal with that. And the cortisol is a marker. It's just one piece of a puzzle because Mm. say it's LEA. Let's just use LEA because there's other markers of LEA as well. You've got your ferritin, you've got your CRP, you've got anemia, you know, you say you, you use those three things. So what you may do is say, okay, I'm going to address the LEA. So you have an athlete, they're fueling better, they're resting more, they're getting, you know, they're getting the the recovery that they need, their performance is improving, maybe their menstrual cycles came back, and but their cortisol is still high. Are we going to panic because the cortisol isn't falling in line? Maybe there's some other reason. Maybe the cortisol might be falling in line, but maybe it's not quite where one would expect it to be. But at the end of the day, when you look at the whole picture, that athlete's doing a whole hell of a lot better. So you don't want to then throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, I'm not doing enough because my cortisol is not right. Well, no, the whole organism is right because you address the threat. And the body tends to have compensatory mechanisms to bring itself back to equilibrium. So cortisol can be a tool, but it's just one small tool in the other armamentarium of stuff that we have. Um, So it's not the be all to end all. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not wrong to check it. It is, it's not wrong to follow it, but you have to take it for what it is. It's one small piece of an extremely big puzzle. And where does exercise specifically fit into this, right? I mean, you know, we have exercise that certainly activates this, the sympathetic nervous system, right? We've talked about this to trigger the cortisol response. Like um, there's been really interesting studies on endurance athletes where they look at their hair and they have like more cortisol, uh, elevated cortisol hair concentrations, you know, for whatever. I mean, I'm sure when you're out there for 12 hours doing something, it's pretty stressful. Um, where does exercise fit in and, and why are people sort of honing in and worried about that being the, the cortisol problem in keeping it well, elevated? 
here's 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 the thing and here's the 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 dilemma so okay. especially in midlife right all right that's what we're talking we, about yeah in midlife it's a very catabolic time of our lives we are losing muscle mass we are losing bone mass um we are losing power um because that's what happens when your estrogen receptors go down and when your estrogen levels go down these are the changes that start to happen metabolism is changing because of the relative insulin resistance so so that's what's what's happening in the body to prevent that you need to exercise because if you don't exercise those declines are going to keep happening at a very rapid pace so to mitigate those things in these things the bone loss the muscle loss the cardiovascular decline that's the stuff that's going to kill you eventually so you have to mitigate that and the only way to mitigate that is by exercise and not just walking just walking isn't going to help the triathlete or the powerlifter to maintain that level of fitness and to stave off the decline. Walking helps for the sedentary person who doesn't do it. That's a step in the right direction. I'm not demonizing walking. I think it's great, but you have to think about, okay, well, what type of exercise am I capable of doing? So you need to do the exercise to maintain and to become fitter. In order to exercise to an extent to maintain or become fitter, your cortisol and your stress response needs to be involved. So the problem isn't that we're doing too much exercise. Well, maybe, you know, you might be out of balance, but but just for the sake of the conversation, you need to do the exercise to get fitter, to stave off the other things that are declining. To do that exercise, you need your stress response to be activated. But what you what the focus needs to be on is the recovery and bringing the response back to equilibrium. That's where the focus is. Not to eliminate the exercise, because if you eliminate the exercise, the rest of your health parameters are going to go downhill fast. But what you need to do is say, okay, I need to jack up my cortisol to get fitter, but I need to bring it back down and I need to recover better. I need to fuel appropriately. I need not to overtrain. I need to do enough tissue care, get the sleep. So that's where the focus needs to be, not, not doing the exercise. I, I would love you to say that louder for the people in the back, but I think, I think we've got it. And I, I want to... This this dovetails really nicely with something that I talk about a lot in the show. We certainly talk about it in Next Level. Like a lot of what we talk about in this space is um, picking up some of the slack that your hormones used to help your body do naturally, right? Like that's a lot of what we talk about when we talk about lifting heavy, when we talk about all this stuff, like your hormones used to just help you maintain your muscle and your bone naturally. Now you need to do a little more to help your body because they're, they're just not there at the same level. And what I'm hearing you say is that maybe you used to be able to get away and your stress response would normalize more a bit on its own, but now it, that's not happening. So it becomes increasingly important not to say goodbye to the hard stuff that you were doing, but to say more hello to like all the stuff that you might've blown off before, whether that's a cool down or mobility work or days off or that kind of thing. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. 100%. I, I know for myself, sometimes my warmups last longer than my workouts. I mean, I'm a CrossFitter. Our workouts tend to be, you know, short and spicy. Um, but I spend now uh, that I'll be 53 next week. I spend more time now warming up and cooling down than the workout itself. And I thank God I do it because it makes a huge difference. Because if I go into a workout cold, I'll pull a muscle, I'll get injured. And, you know, 
um, it's not worth it. Um, but you know, your body changes, you know, I'm menopausal now, my body has changed. And so I've had to figure out through a lot of trial and error, what do I need to do? And one of the things I personally need to do is warm up more and cool down more. The other thing I need to do is a lot more yoga, mobility work and uh, mindfulness stuff. Um, because, you know, not only am I a CrossFit athlete recreationally, but, you know, I've got this, this day job called, you know, Boston IVF and my medical practice and everything I'm doing. So my psychological stress is, is through the roof. And so I have to manage that, you know, not to mention all the physical changes just because of where I am in my life. Um, so yeah, so I've had to totally turn upside down and start from scratch saying, okay, here's where I am. And what do I need now? What's working and what's not working? And taking that inventory, which starts with what are my stressors, um, is is really the most valuable thing that you can do. And it seems to me that we are all very, very good at activating our sympathetic nervous system, but maybe we're not as good at activating our parasympathetic system, right? So like we it 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 behooves us, and that's what I'm hearing you say at this time, to learn all those techniques, whether it be the breathing exercises, the yoga, the mindfulness. Um, I know that's what like cold plunge is all the rage because of, you know, the, the vagus nerve. Uh, but but there could be something to it when you need more help getting to that state, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think tissue care is a very important thing that a lot of times people neglect. You know, we're all strapped for time. And Define what's tissue the- care. Um, tissue care, like, uh, foam rolling, something mm-hmm. simple, like foam rolling, massage, body work, things like that. Um, you know, it could be sauna, could be a cold plunge because that's affecting your tissues as well. So anything that is helping your tissues to recover an active recovery day is, is tissue care as well, because you're, you're still moving, but you're not moving. Um, so, you know, taking care of, of those things is, um, is super, super important. And it's the first thing to go, you know, because when we're all strapped for time, it's like, all right, I got 30 minutes to get my trail, my, my hill running in. Well, am I going to meditate beforehand? I'm not sure if I can do the 10 minute meditation afterwards. And I am guilty of it myself. Um, all the time I have to really commit to saying, okay, I got to give myself 45 minutes. I can't just get this in in 30 minutes. I got to give myself 45 minutes because I have to warm up. I have to cool down. It's a priority. And if I can't do those things, maybe I have to cut the run short. And then, of course, no, you don't you don't want to do that. So it's really prioritizing it. Um, You got to do it um, because your your body will thank you. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent, excellent point. And I, you know, I definitely started doing that like it was my treat when I had those long, hard swims leading up to this half Ironman I did. They There's a jacuzzi, you know, between the pool and the locker room. And I'd be like, I am just going to do my workout and I'm going to treat myself by going in. And there, you can set it for two minutes or five minutes or whatever. I'm like, at least two minutes. And as soon as I would step into that water, it was like I melted. It was just like I could just feel everything just go, oof. You know, and I would sleep really well. And I'm like, there's definitely something to this. <laughs> you know, like taking that two minutes just to act, just to bring it all down was had such profound effects on my mental state. It was unbelievable. It, it is. And how little time you need to your point. You're just saying two minutes. One of the things my coach told me to do, and this was during a time where I felt like I was drowning. I was just going through stuff. I just really did not feel like I had good control over getting my stress response back to baseline. It was affecting me physically. She said, Carla, look, 
Take three minutes before your workout and do breath work in three minutes after. It's three minutes. That's all you need to do. It will make a huge difference. And oh my God, I was laughing. I'm like, three minutes? I need like a half a day doing that with the stuff that I'm going through right now. And she said, nope, just do three minutes before and after. Stick with it. Do it for two weeks. Tell me how you feel afterwards. And I was blown away by what my whoop strap was telling me, my HRV went up through the roof. I was sleeping better. I'm like, damn, there's really something to this. A hundred percent. And I, I am super guilty of not warming up enough. Like that's my thing. And my coach was very adamant about like taking that time. So I would take three and it was three minutes and it makes such a huge difference. And whenever you want to minimize what three minutes is, I mean, you can put it in context of Three minutes is a boxing match, you know, like that's a long time. Three minutes. I try doing three minutes of burpees, like three minutes right. is actually a long time, you know, it is, so it's it, real time. yeah, it's going to have, if it's, I mean, we do tend to like, it's funny how we'll just blow off that number when it's one thing and then we'll, we'll appreciate the gravity of it when it's another, but if you do something mindfully for three minutes, it's actually, it is quite a, it's enough time to make an impact. Yeah. And, and with breath work, you know, and they, they, they say this in Ayurvedic medicine, you know, though that's mm-hmm. the, it, it originates in India. I think they're all about the breath and the magic of the breath and how the stress response system is linked to the breath and, you know, dealing with anxiety too. That is something that's a tool that people use. You know, I have an issue with flying. And so what I was told by some experts was that you need to slow your breathing down because if you slow your breathing down, you're, you know, it's going to tell your brain, you know, the plane's not crashing. It's everything's fine. And, and, you know, the stress response listens to the breath. So I think breath work is very powerful because it is linked directly to the stress response system. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I had a fascinating uh, show with Jill Miller, who does a whole huge, very big, heavy book, Body by Breath, that, you know, talks about the diaphragm and the vagus nerve. It's, when you really, really dig into it, you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, that makes, you know, it makes so much sense. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. I want to take a minute to talk about um, hormones specifically. I, I had sent you, there was an interesting study that came out like just a couple of weeks ago 
about birth control pills disrupting the women's stress response. And it made me wonder what that was about. And then also like, how does menopausal hormone therapy then fit into this picture? Uh, Like since, you know, since we're talking about the decline of estrogen, removing some of this buffering system, where where does a hormone therapy fit in? I I thought that was really interesting. I looked at it um, when you sent me the link to try to get familiar with it. I hadn't I hadn't heard of it previously. But let's let's take let's take the two things separately. So birth yeah. control pills. So let's assume if you're taking birth control pills, you are probably a woman who's still cycling. Okay. So let's assume this is a woman who's still cycling. As we were as we've been talking about for the for the the whole show so far, it's about how the stress response system talks to the system that runs the menstrual cycle, the HPA and the HPG access talk to each other. They live in the same house. They talk to each other. So it stands to reason the mechanism behind birth control pills is to suppress ovulation. So if you're suppressing ovulation, you're suppressing that cycle. Now now your HPA is saying, huh, there's no menstrual cycle going on there. And it's going to change and it is going to maybe try to upregulate things to bring it back to equilibrium. I don't know what it will do. I'm not sure what studies have been done on the impact of no cycles or birth control pill suppressed cycles with the HPA access. But it stands to reason and logic that something's going to change because the two things talk to each other and now something has changed with one of them. Right. Um, but what that translates into as a real life situation, such as, well, does that mean that someone on birth control pills can't respond to stress the same way? Is the woman on birth control pills not going to be able to respond to the coyote in the bushes in the same way the woman with her period will? Probably not going to be much of a difference. But what the body does is it uses other pathways to compensate for whatever change is happening. So whether or not you know, that change that's happening as a result of the birth control pills results in any meaningful, significant impact in response to stress, I I think remains to be seen. But it's not surprising to me that if you alter the menstrual cycle, you're going to alter, you know, you're going to create changes in in that um, HPG axis. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, you know, since it's such a integrated complex system. I also wonder if there's a little piece in there, you know, they keep trying to tease out the effect of oral birth control pills on training adaptations too, right? And it seems like maybe there's something interacting with all of this that it's a lot to tease out. It, it, it is. And, and the whole question you could do, anybody could do a whole show on, on the question about, you know, the menstrual cycle, the responses, what is it, you know, does it help? Does it not help? You know, at the female athlete conference that we were just at, you know, there's, there's a lot, it's like the studies are okay. The studies don't show any significant difference. Well, there's so much variation in women's menstrual cycles and so much variation among the study participants, the size of the study to achieve statistical significance of even 5% when you've got that much variation would require far more participants than they have. And the study may not even be feasible. So, you know, to just say, okay, done and dusted, there's no impact on training and the menstrual cycle, I don't think does it justice because there are real biological reasons why it could matter. 
Um, we know that the muscles use glucose differently during different parts of the cycle. We know it uses glucose more in the, in the follicular phase than it does in the luteal phase. We know that according to the, the, the uh, researchers at the meeting, 60% of women say, yes, my menstrual cycle affects my performance. So I think the jury is still out on that. And, you know, if you're taking birth control pills and you're changing the menstrual cycle, well, how does that play into it? You know, if you have, if you're someone whose natural menstrual cycles give you very painful, heavy, horrific periods, in her case, the birth control pills may help her performance. Totally. But if, you've, if you've got someone who has normal natural periods that aren't bothersome to her, she's taking it for contraception, maybe it could impact her. You know, there's so much variation. It's hard to, you know, blanket it with a broad stroke and say, this is what's true for everybody because everybody's so different. So then let's go to the menopausal hormone therapy piece. Is there any, do you, do you think that that would have any sort of benefit? You know, so when menopausal women, they've stopped cycling naturally. Yeah. So now there's a whole other adaptation that the whole body, not just the stress response pathway, but the whole body has to go through to now deal with this new normal. So menopausal hormone therapy isn't designed to do anything to menstrual cycles because the menstrual cycles are gone by the time you're menopausal. So it's not there. But when you think about alleviating the symptoms. Like if you've got a woman whose sleep is being disrupted by her hot flashes, that is going to impact her stress response tremendously. This could be something that leads to chronic stress with her. You know, if she's a CEO, if she's a high performing individual and she's not sleeping at night because her hot flashes are debilitating, her, this is going to chronically activate her stress response. You give her menopausal hormone therapy and this helps her hot flashes and she suddenly starts sleeping again, then that is going to do wonders for her stress response. So because of the symptoms that are so life-changing that menopausal hormone therapy treats, it's hard to tease out, well, what is the hormonal effect on the stress response system as opposed to the symptoms that you are now treating impacting the stress response? If you can reduce the stressors by reducing symptoms, then, you know, the, the, then, you're, then the menopausal hormone therapy is doing a good thing. But it's hard to sift out. Is it the symptoms or is it the, the, the hormonal biology that's making the difference? It's hard to know. What about in a perimenopausal woman who, you know, like if we rewind on the conversation, we were talking about how the stress response is like, the like we're not menstruating every month and the hormones are all over the place. And a lot of times women start using some therapy in that perimenopausal period mm -hmm. just to sort of like turn down the volume on the craziness, right? For lack of a better, would that maybe have a beneficial effect because the brain is maybe sensing a bit more, um, not, not quite as wild a fluctuation? Yeah, it's possible. It's absolutely possible. And again, it's kind of muddied by, you know, if you've got a perimenopausal woman who's taking birth control pills, she's probably taking it because she's got symptoms that are, you know, really disrupting her life. And so if the pill helps those symptoms, then she's going to be, it's going to be a benefit. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know because it's so hard to sift out the difference between the effects of symptom alleviation yeah. versus the hormone interaction with the receptors and in the pathways themselves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I feel 
I feel clear. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully the audience feels a bit clear. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to leave the audience with about this marvelous hormone of cortisol? Well, I think the, 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 the main take home that I want people to take away is that cortisol is not the be all to end all. It is one player among many in an orchestra. It's the trumpet in the whole orchestra of the endocrine response system uh, of our lives. It's, uh, it's, it's measurable, not easy to measure, but that's why people use it. Uh, but it's an important piece of data, but all it is is a piece. There's a lot more going on there. In terms of practically, well, how do we deal with this whole thing? You know, if you're concerned with cortisol, you're concerned with your stress response. I think the main thing that people should know is to know what your stressors are. Take an inventory, know what your stressors are, identify them, be honest with yourself about them. And that's where the therapy starts is knowing exactly what's causing your issues. Um, are you fueling appropriately? And I always bring this up with female athletes is we've learned LEA red S huge, huge problem um, in female athletes huge. of all ages, of all ages. And that is a huge trigger of the stress response. So in addition to knowing your stressors, I also ask the question, okay, so are you fueling appropriately? Because people have relationships with food that are complicated. And sometimes that's a hard thing to take a sit back and look at objectively. You may want to employ the help of a good friend, a coach or whatever. Think about your relationships with food and if you're fueling appropriately. Uh, training balance, that's the other thing. Are you overtraining for this stage of life? You know, Are you doing high volumes of training that are just leading to diminishing returns? Maybe you need to take a step back and be more strategic. It's like, all right, I'm not gonna do a long run five days a week. Maybe I'm gonna do that three days a week and spend the other two on tissue care. Um, because then you'll get more out of the three days that you are running. Um, so reestablishing a training balance um, for this next stage of life is really important. So that can reduce your stress response that your body is able to come back to equilibrium. And then the last thing, and certainly not the least important, is sleep recovery and mindfulness practice. You know, our parasympathetic nervous system needs a little extra help. So that's where the mindfulness and the breath work uh, comes in and sleep and recovery. Uh, it just, we need more of it um, because those recovery mechanisms are not functioning as well as they used to. So we just need to pay a little more mind to it. So those are the biggies that I would say uh, will help manage your stress response, knowing what you're dealing with and then pulling out your toolbox and then dealing with all those things. That's excellent. And as you were talking, I thought of one more <laughs> one more question. And I feel like I'm bringing out a can of snakes for you. So just just forgive me. <laughs> but, one, but one of the things I mean, if we're gonna really go down to brass tacks on cortisol and why people worry about it, it's fat. Mm. Right? It's because yes. they associate it with putting on fat, particularly belly fat. That is, I mean, if we, that is really why this hormone gets so much attention on the internet, right? Can we? Yeah, but yeah, we absolutely that? can talk about that. So okay. again, the cortisol isn't the problem. The stressor is the problem. It's the fact that maybe you're not fueling appropriately. Your body thinks there's a worldwide famine and is hanging on to every possible molecule of fat that it can. It's dialing down your thyroid gland because you are chronically not getting enough fuel. Your body is taking these measures to try to conserve energy. 
the cortisol is not the problem. It's the low energy availability that's the problem. So again, whether we're talking about fat, whether we're talking about cardiovascular disease risk, it all comes down to the same thing. You got to deal with the stressor. The cortisol is just a player in that ball game. You got to deal with the whole team. You got to deal with a stressor. And, uh, you know, that pertains to fat, that pertains to any other physical effect that a chronically activated stress response has. A hundred percent. And cortisol does not turn into fat. Just so no, just let's, let's metabolically just put that out there because you see some crazy stuff on the internet and that's just not true. That's, that's yeah, yeah. Not... It's bio, biochemically impossible. <laughs> In my blog, I actually put the two chemical structures up and it says, look, <laughs> do these look at this cortisol look anything like this fatty acid molecule? No, they do not turn. One does not turn into the other, but people just, they make the link, you know, and, and again, you know, what I don't want to get lost on people is that it's the it's the stress response as a whole and cortisol doesn't define it cortisol is just part of it yep yep and the big take-home message of the show is learning how to activate your parasympathetic system so you can like bring it all down and and reap the benefits of what you've done to activate your sympathy it's like a yin yang thing right like that's what we're trying to do Yeah. And we just have to pay more attention to that piece of the equation now because, you know, we're in midlife. Our bodies are dealing with a whole huge hormonal overhaul. You know, going through puberty was a huge hormonal overhaul. Now we're going through puberty backwards. It's another huge hormonal overhaul. And, you know, the stress response has its hands full doing that in and of itself. Um, and then you add stressors onto it. We just need to uh, make sure that we give our stress response system all the help that it can get to deal with all of these things that it's dealing with at this stage of life. Well, that's our show. Come on back next week when I sit down with Diesta Goldsmith of Vision Up Wellness to talk about how she went from writing software for astronauts to being a bodybuilder and figure competitor to now being a menopause fitness coach who is on a mission to help all women, but especially black women and other women of color, get the support they deserve. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.